You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I hope you have your copy of the Word of God handy. And would you take it this morning and open it to Matthew's Gospel? Matthew's Gospel and the 16th chapter, please. I feel very privileged to share in these services today as the pastor is away with his family on vacation, needing some R&R. And uh, so I feel blessed to be able to open the Word of God with our congregation today. Matthew chapter 16, beginning with the 13th verse. Familiar passage, actually, the passage that Brother Brent preached on last week. How many times have you come to church? And in two successive weeks, actually he used the Gospel of Mark last week, the same instance in the life of Jesus and his disciples. And we're going to take a little different direction today. So uh, some of it will be a little bit familiar. Hopefully some of it will be plowing new ground. Let's read together, beginning with verse 13. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Well, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, oh, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Let's pray once again. Father, we pray that today the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. The Lord Jesus Christ would be enthroned majestically, centrally here in our midst, and we'll see him as we've just sung in all his holiness and radiance and glory. And today as we look into your word, May we know just a little bit more of who he is as the Lord of the church and what we are to be and do as his servants, his followers, members of the body of Christ to live for him and glorify him. So speak to us, Lord, from your word. We wait upon you today in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there are three institutions initiated and founded by the true and living God. The first is the home 
which is based on the loving marriage union of one woman and one man resulting in a posterity that would multiply and populate the whole earth. The second is government, which has been appointed by God to keep the peace, to encourage good conduct, and to punish those who do wrong. The third institution founded by God is the church, which has its source in the life and death, resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ and the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. In our study this morning, there'll be implications for the, what's called the universal church, which is the worldwide body of Christ, including believers, all believers from all time, which is the church as God sees it. And other implications for the local assembly of believers, like our church, which is the church as we see it. Now the church, excuse me, the church is at the heart of God's program of, for mankind till the Lord comes back and claims his bride for himself. Christ intends for both the universal church and the local church to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, and a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. Matthew is the only gospel that uses the word church. It's used twice in the context of discipline within the body of Christ and here in our text. So Jesus is the teacher of the disciples. He's their rabbi. And so today we're going to sit at his feet and see what he would teach us from this passage about the church. The first thing he would teach us is about the church's stability, the church's stability. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, the question arises, who or what is the rock on which the church is built? Well, over the centuries, this has been a subject of great debate. It's clear that due to the words Jesus used that Peter is not the foundation of the church. Peter's name, Petros, simply means a, a little stone, a little pebble. And I want to tell you folks that the church, the Christ, that the church of Christ is not built on some frail, fallen human being like you or me. Would God possibly build his church on someone who said publicly, out loud, and with curses three times that he denied his Lord? Jesus says here that the church will not be built on a Petros like Peter, but on a Petra like a boulder-like, foundation-like, bedrock kind of stone. This surely means that Jesus himself, whom Peter had just confessed to be the Christ, the son of the living God, is the true foundation of the church. So my friends, the church is built on the confession of the Lord and the Lord of this confession. This is to be the confession of all who would come into the church which has been from the early days of the first church. The confession is, Jesus Christ is my Lord. You see, it's all about who Jesus is. In verse 13, Jesus had asked the question, who do people say that I am? What's the word out there on the street? This is the most important question of all time. How we answer it means the difference between heaven and hell. 
The Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus asked the same question. Who are you, Lord? He asked in Acts chapter 9, verse 5. Well, here are the answers that some would give. You're John the Baptist, or you're Elijah, Jeremiah, maybe one of the prophets. That's a different study for a different time. But Peter, Jesus said, Peter, you didn't arrive at your answer through some intellectual process or some uh, a process of inference or deduction. No. God the Father had graciously revealed this truth to Peter. That's how anyone comes to Christ, you know. God takes the initiative to reveal the truth about Jesus to the individual. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 that God, he said, let light shine out of darkness like in the original creation. That God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the rock is not Peter, but rather the Christ of Peter's confession. It's true that Peter and the other apostles and the prophets through their inspired writings were foundational to the beginning of the church as Paul wrote in Ephesians 2. But in the Bible, the word rock is often a reference to God as in Psalm 31 verse three, the Lord is my rock. And in 2 Samuel 22 verse 47, David again said, blessed be my rock. Not rock, but rock. He's talking about God. Paul even writes in 2 Corinthians 10, 14, that the rock from which the Israelites drank as they were wandering in the desert, that rock was Christ, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, 14. And since we know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we can be sure that the foundation of the church is secure and stable and it will endure forever. Didn't we just sing, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. We sing it, we believe it, we live by it and bank on it. So in the ultimate sense, Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, is the foundation rock of the church. My friends, the church will endure because it's founded on the rock. It's founded on Jesus Christ and on the confession that he is the son of God. Thus, we have the church's stability. But Jesus also taught about the church's certainty, the church's certainty in verse 18. He says, I will build my church. Jesus has promised to build his church. He didn't say, I plan to build a church, or I hope to build the church, or if my people will cooperate with me, I'll build the church. He said, I will build my church. I'll do it. It's going to be built. It will come to pass. And so, my friends, we're a part of something that cannot fail. <laughs> we're a part of something that's guaranteed to succeed because the sovereign Lord who has all authority in heaven and on earth has promised, I will build my church. Well, neither did he say, I will build your church or you will build my church. 
Jesus Christ himself assumes full responsibility for the undertaking of building his church, for its success, for its completion. You see, he is the master builder, not us. We are his chosen instruments that he graciously uses in this building process to carry out his work. If we try to build his church our way, we'll probably find ourselves in competition with him. Even though at times we may have questions regarding the church, that it, whether it's actually growing, we can take heart that as we remain faithful to the gospel and to the word of God, even in the midst of challenging times like the pandemic that we just came through, or periods of uncertainty because of disloyalty or fa failure of some members, Christ is still building his church. If a pastor retires or moves to another location or ministry, Christ raises up another. If a leader fails, the Lord will send another. If a family moves away or joins another congregation, the Holy Spirit will bring another family to take their place. But the work will go on because Jesus has promised to build his church, hence the church's certainty. Jesus also taught us about the church's identity. The church's identity in verse 18, he says, I'll build my church. It's his church. His church is the one in which he is preeminent. One that is submissive to him as the head. One in which he is taught and preached and followed and obeyed as Lord. Just because a building has church out there on the marquee, on its sign out front, it doesn't mean it's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. His church is one that preaches his word, one that is filled with the Holy Spirit, one that honors his Father, that longs for Jesus' return. His church is one that obeys his commands, one that promotes his glory in all things, one that magnifies his name, one that pursues his will, one that seeks to extend his kingdom to the farthest ends of the earth, one that champions his cause and his truth. That, my friends, is the church he is building. Now, our church is not a, a, a democracy like our nation, but it's rather a theocracy governed by God, led by God. The church does not decide by majority vote which ministries and programs we'll be involved in, whether we stay or relocate, or whether we have blue or red or yellow carpet or upholstery, or whether we have a praise band or whatever. No, Christ decides all that because he is the Lord. He's the head of the church. It's his church. You see, in our business meetings, which we have quarterly, we're not to usurp his authority and push for our own desires our wishes or our opinions to be approved, but his. In Acts 15, we read of the, the early church gathering in Jerusalem for a council to decide how they would receive the Gentile churches who were responding to the gospel out in the, the, the gospel frontier. And Luke writes, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Hmm. That's how they came to a consensus not of their own opinions, but it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, who is God, and to us, who are 
seeking to be obedient to his leadership. And so that's a good model for us to follow. So when there's a decision to be made in our congregation, we pray to get his mind and then we agree together to do his will because it is his church. Now it's his church because he owns it. Christ bought and paid for the church with his own blood. The blood is of a lamb without blemish and without spot, 1 Peter 1.19. Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.25 that he gave his life for his bride, the church. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20.28 that he purchased the church with his own blood. So it's not our church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's his church. He bought it and he owns it. It's also his church because he himself called the members out from the world to be part of it. When Jesus calls, he calls in two ways. And one must say yes to both of those calls in order to be a part of his church. You see, when the gospel is preached and it falls on our external ears, we hear the gospel and we, we hear the call of God when it is preached or taught or sung only externally. But there's a second call that Christ gives and it's an inward call that the Holy Spirit brings to our hearts. He speaks light into a sin-darkened sin heart and he brings spiritual life to a heart that is dead in trespasses and sins. Paul told the Roman believers that they were the called of Jesus Christ, beloved of God, called to be saints in Romans 1, 6, and 7. He, the apostle Peter wrote that believers are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. They were once not a people, but now they are a people. They had not received mercy, but now they had received mercy, 1 Peter 2, 9, and 10. So it's this inward call of the Holy Spirit that makes a person a true born-again believer. People who respond to this inward call, they come. They believe. They obey. And they continue living for Jesus right on. The problem with many of our churches is that they have people who've only heard that first call, the external call with their ears, but have never said yes to that inward call that the Holy Spirit brings. You know, no other institution in the whole wide world compares to the church. No other will let you join free and then challenge you to give everything. <laughs> no other will tell you how to live and how to die. No other will tell you the truth on every subject. No other will visit you in your illness and stand beside your bed and your family when you die. No other promotes the good of the family, as does the church. No other will teach your children how to be good and godly. No other will point the way to heaven and how to have eternal life. No other will weep with you when you weep and rejoice with you when you rejoice. No other will counsel you and console you and even correct you like the church. And no other organization or club or team or any other entity on earth will extend into eternity. But only the church of Jesus Christ, hence its identity.
It's his church. Fourth, Jesus would teach us about the church's invincibility. Invincibility. The gates of hell, he said, shall not prevail against the church. Now, the word invincible means that it cannot be conquered. It cannot be overcome. It cannot be subdued. There's no more resilient organization on the planet than the church. Organizations come and go. Leaders, governments, and nations rise and they fall, but the church continues on. Over the centuries, evil rulers and their regimes, false religious groups have persecuted the church in an attempt to blot it out of existence. But the church goes on. Christians will continue to worship in any little secret corner they can find. A couple of years ago, I heard about a pastor in China, and by the way, the church is growing exponentially in China. It was this pastor in China who was leading an underground church. Now that doesn't mean they go underground, although they might, but they're in secret. And so he had a van. He didn't have a building, but he had a van. And so he'd fill that uh, van up with gas early in the morning on the Lord's Day. And he'd go to a street corner and four or five, six of his church members would get in. They'd ride around town using up good gas and praying and teaching and discipling and singing and worshiping. And he'd go drop them off at another corner and he'd pick up five or six more. And they would drive around for a couple of hours preaching, singing, teaching, and learning about Jesus and discipleship. He dropped them off. And he continued from sunup to sundown. Church, even in places like China, will go on, folks. The media may align the church, may malign the church. Perverted groups and individuals may oppose the church. The U.S. government or Supreme Court may rule against the church. The IRS IRS may even begin to tax the church. But the church of the Lord Jesus will continue on and even thrive in the midst of all this. You know, don't you, that through times when the persecution has been the greatest against the church, it has thrived the most. It has been strongest. The church is invincible because the Lord of the church is invincible. In our text, the word hell, in some translations you see it translated Hades, is not a reference to eternal punishment for sins. It's rather a reference to death, death, which is our ultimate enemy. And Jesus says, the gates of Hades or hell, death, cannot defeat the church. Well, whose death cannot defeat the church? Jesus' death? Well, no, Jesus rose again from the dead. And beginning with this very occasion with his disciples, he began speaking of his own death and resurrection. So his death will not be the death of the church. How about the apostles' death? Well, every one of them died violent deaths for their faith in the Lord, except for John the Beloved, who continued into his late 90s. The apostles' death didn't end the church. How about the death of martyrs, Christian martyrs over the centuries? The early church father, Tertullian, said the the blood of martyrs has been the seed, the growth mechanism of the church. Yes, the death of those who passed into eternity at the hands of persecutors 
who had the confession of Jesus on their lips as they breathed their last has actually resulted in the flourishing of the church over the centuries. Well, how about your death and my death? Will that end the church? Well, you and I live and die, but the church continues on. Have you ever heard of a church closing its doors because of the death of one of its members? No. The life of the church does not depend on you or me or the richest or most powerful member of this congregation. The church will not die when we die, folks. That may surprise some of you. Forces of death and the grave will not defeat the church, hence the church's invincibility. Jesus would also teach us in the fifth place about the church's authority. He says in verse 19, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. Now he talks to Peter in the, in the singular, but here he begins to talk about uh, 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 these keys in the plural to his, his disciples as a group. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. Well, what's the purpose of keys? We all have keys. You rattle them around your pocket, you lay them on the de desk or table. Sometimes you lose them. <laughs> we can't afford to lose these keys. <laughs> but the purpose of keys is to unlock doors or gates to let people in and to lock them to keep predators and people, some people, out. Here Jesus speaks of our authority and our responsibility and our stewardship. Peter and other apostles, and by the extension, the church today, has the authority and the stewardship of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we proclaim this gospel faithfully, we open the doors of the kingdom to those who would come in through faith in Jesus Christ. People enter the kingdom by embracing the Christ of Peter's confession. And the church is the responsible steward of this gospel. So with this gospel, we open the doors to all who would come. But what if we don't proclaim the gospel? Or what if the gospel that we proclaim is not the true gospel of the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus? Then we're people keeping people out of the kingdom. Hence, the keys of the kingdom. What about this binding and loosing that Jesus said, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. What you bind will be bound. What you loose will be loosed, etc." Well, the sense of the original language here is whatever you bind on earth must be already bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth must be already loosed in heaven. In other words, we don't set the standard for the gospel and the kingdom of God, and then Christ responds to the standard we set. It doesn't work that way. No, God decides on the standard regarding entrance into the kingdom. People must repent of their sins and individuals receive the Lord. And then when they do, we can acknowledge them to be loosed from their sins and on the way to heaven. But when people reject Christ, we must also declare that since he is the only way to the Father, they remain bound in their sins. Second Corinthians chapter two, I wanna read just a couple of verses from chapter uh, two, Second Corinthians two, verse 14 uh, through 16. 
Paul writes, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we're a fragrance of death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And who is sufficient for these things? In other words, we don't have the authority. We don't have the, the power in our own selves. But through him, we have these keys through the gospel. So it's an awesome responsibility to which we must be faithful. Hence, the church's authority. Lastly, we have the vitality of the church, the church's vitality. And uh, we read about that in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and scribes and be killed. Here it is. And on the third day, be raised or be raised again from the dead. You see, the church is more than a mere organization. It's a living organism made alive by the very life of the risen Christ. Yes, he died, but he didn't stay in the grave. He's alive and alive forevermore. And the Holy Spirit came to fill every believer and to dwell in his church on the day of Pentecost. And we read about that in Acts chapter two. Every believer possesses individually the life of Christ through the indwelling spirit of God. First Corinthians chapter six, verse 19 and 20 reads like this. Think of the individual believer. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? All of you who are believers out here, I'm looking at people in whom the Holy Spirit is dwelling right now. You have him from God and you're not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So Paul says that each of us individually are a dwelling place where the spirit has come to take up residence. But back in chapter three, he talks not about us individually, but about the church collectively. And he says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you collectively? This is plural here. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So the church is the body of Christ in which he lives to give power for the mission to which he has called us. Peter wrote, he is the chief cornerstone. We are living stones who are being built up into a spiritual house and a holy priesthood that we may offer spiritual sacrifices through Jesus Christ. Now stone is a dead thing. It has no life. But if the living Lord Jesus Christ gives spiritual life to dead stones, then we become living stones. We possess the very life of the risen Christ. Hence, the church's vitality. The church is alive, folks. It's not a dead organization at all. So in conclusion, Jesus Christ said that he will build his church. And he is in the process of building it. Each and every member of our church should ask ourselves these questions. 
how can I work with him to ensure that I'm a part of that building process? A second question, how can I be certain that I am neither hindering nor competing with him in the building of his church? See, we need to make sure that we are about the main thing of proclaiming the gospel, the word of God, making disciples, and everything else just kind of fritters down to the bottom of the list as secondary. That's the main thing. That's why Jesus came. That's why we have church. So we need the gospel. We don't need gimmicks. We need preaching. We don't need promotion. We need courage, not comfort. We need spirituality, not sentimentality. We need scriptural exposition, not sensual entertainment. This is what Jesus will use to build his church for the fame of his name, for the extension of his kingdom on earth, for the praise of his glorious grace. And I want to challenge all of us in this room today to wholeheartedly join our hands and hearts with the living Lord Jesus Christ and work and serve together with him as he builds his church. We've talked about how you get into his church by repentance of your sins and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm gonna be down here at front in just a moment. And if anybody wants to come forward and acknowledge you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and your savior, I would love to talk to you and pray with you. Our Father, we thank you for Christ's church. It's not just a place to come on Sunday, not just to come and the children and youth and have a good time. Lord, it's not about us, it's about you. And we want to be, we want to be vital parts of your church. Oh, Father, let us be completely submissive to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of the church. As we move forward in these days, we move into summer and then into fall. It's not about seasons because you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, Lord. And so move in our hearts to deepen our commitment, not necessarily to the church, but to the Lord of the church, to Jesus himself. Everything else will take care of itself as we find our total allegiance and greatest loyalty to him as Lord and Savior. We pray in his name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I wanna personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.